Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Idealist Podcast. I'm Andrew Short, and on this episode, I want to ask the question, what is existence? I've already gone into this question in quite a lot of depth in my YouTube channel. So today on the podcast, I'm going to stitch together three of those videos that I think have really interesting content that I think you'll like. A lot of the visual content that goes along with these videos, I think, isn't really necessary. But for any of the moments where I'm talking directly about the visual content, I'll come in and explain what's being shown on screen. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate it and review it on iTunes. Thanks, and hope you enjoy. What is existence? That is, what is reality? What does it take for something to exist? In this video series, the word existence explicitly refers to absolutely everything at once. If something exists, has ever existed, or can possibly exist, that thing is part of existence. I'll also use the word reality as a synonym for existence, and say also that something is real if it is part of reality. Let's first examine the nature of things which we hold to be inarguably real. Objective physical objects like computers, tables, and water. It's difficult to really imagine being able to doubt the existence of these things, because our day-to-day -day livelihood depends on being able to reliably interact with and manipulate objects such as these. After handling such objects over the course of a lifetime, it becomes clear that they all share two absolutely fundamental characteristics. They exist over time, and they take up space. The fact that all physical objects possess these qualities suggests that they are quite important, so let's examine them each in turn. Spatiality. The spatial form an object takes up is comprised of the geometric relationships that every point on that object has to every other. Okay, here's a description for the podcast version. At this point in the video, I just hold up a glass and show different geometric points on that glass, so just picture that. For example, this point on the glass stands in relation to this point on the glass, and this point, and this point, and integrating all of these relations into the cumulative relationship that point has to the rest of the glass represents the position that point occupies in the glass. The same is true of every point on the glass. If any one of these points had a different geometric relationship with the rest of the glass, no matter how minute, the glass would have a different form. This general pattern of an object's form representing the geometric relationships between every point on that object applies to any physical object. Without these relationships to make up the information pertaining to the object's exact form, the object would not embody that form. The existence of its spatial form depends on the existence of its geometric interrelations. The spatial nature of existence contains not only every object's geometric relationship with itself, but every geometric relationship between all objects. The position any object occupies in space is defined by all of these relationships taken together as one whole set of information. Okay, cutting in again. This next scene, I just pick up a glass from one part of a table and put it on another part of that table. If I move my glass over here, I have changed its geometric relationship to all other existent objects everywhere in the universe. The information pertaining to that change is carried away from the object in the form of light waves and gravitational effects at the speed of light, so an observer on the moon with a powerful telescope would not be aware that her geometric relationship with my glass has changed until about 1.2 seconds after I've made the change. Thus far, spatiality has been described in terms of objects and the geometric ratios between their positions, but space itself exists on a more fundamental level than these. Just as the form an object occupies in space is comprised of the geometric relationships between the points on that object, the form of space itself is comprised of the geometric relationships between points in space. A point in space can be thought of as a possible position in space, and each is distinct from every other in a precise network of geometric relations. 
In the absence of the geometric framework supplied by the relationships between possible points, no object could relate to itself, no objects could have positions relative to one another, and spatiality itself could not exist. In other words, without the span of possible points between here and here, these two positions could not have the geometric relationship they do. The succession of distinct possible points makes up the fabric of the geometric space separating them. This raises a key question. If the existence of space is dependent on the existence of the logic of geometry, what must it take for that logic to exist? I'll set this question aside for now and move on to the temporal nature of physical objects. Temporality. Alongside existing in space, physical objects exist over time. It may seem mysterious that this is the case. Compared to space with its nature in plain view to us, time can seem like an abstruse and enigmatic phenomenon. But if we look closely, we'll see that it can be understood in similarly simple terms. Our starting point will be the observation that as time passes, things change. This is true even for seemingly stationary, static objects, like those untouched for years in a forgotten attic. They may look as if they're unchanging, but we know that their atoms are in constant motion, continually changing position with respect to all others. They interact with light and other electromagnetic waves, bombarded from time to time by high-energy cosmic rays. They're ceaselessly compressed by their own weight due to gravity, a physical interaction which contributes to some of the atomic motion they undergo. All of this change occurs alongside visible changes in the outside world, the sun rising and setting, the leaves budding and falling. Large-scale changes, such as those we can observe in everyday life, are dwarfed in number and complexity by the countless particulate changes, like atoms and molecules moving around, that occur during those large-scale changes. Because the bulk of any object's change in any duration is undergone at the atomic and subatomic level, the global progress of change averages out to an exceedingly constant pace which our clocks can easily and reliably measure. For example, though a shattering glass undergoes a dramatic change in shape, it does not undergo a significantly greater total amount of change than a cup sitting still, because the macroscale change of shattering is many orders of magnitude less complex than the microscale change of octillions of atoms simply interacting with each other over that duration. The time our clocks tick off is in fact nothing but a useful means of quantifying and measuring the average rate of change at the atomic level. Our mechanical clocks implicitly make use of this fact, because the mechanical properties of springs rely on the interactions between the molecules making up those springs. We explicitly make use of this fact when we engineer atomic clocks which measure the natural oscillation rate of atoms such as cesium. Therefore, saying time is passing is simply the quantified version of saying things are changing. The pertinent question now becomes, what is the nature of change? Again, if our thinking is precise, this is a very easy question to answer in simple terms. Change is the result of the nature of causality. Put simply, the reason any change happens is the cause of that change, and the result of that change is the effect. Every effect, in turn, acts as a cause for further effects, and this tireless propagation of cause unto effect wholly characterizes the passage of time. Causality unfolds according to precise, unimpeachable logical rules, in much the same way that spatiality embodies the precise logic of geometry. However, the logic governing causality is much broader and more complex than the logic governing spatiality, and this logical framework has some interesting and notable characteristics which give the passage of time its distinctive nature. Firstly, the logical rules which delineate just what future effects can result from any present configuration of causes are known as the laws of physics. From the orbitals electrons can occupy in atoms, the strong confinement of protons and nuclei, and the way atoms can share electrons, leading to the entirety of chemical possibility, to the necessary warping of spacetime caused by mass, and the laws of conservation of energy and momentum, and beyond, the laws of physics underlie the physical progression of causes unto effects in the universe. 
Second, because the existence of any effect is wholly dependent on the prior existence of its cause, change unfolds sequentially. This logical circumstance in which causes must exist prior to their effects assures that change cannot happen all at once. Any physical change takes place over a definite duration characterized by the logical nature of the causal chain underlying that change. Third, every effect is inextricably logically bound to its cause. Further, every effect's cause is the effect of a prior cause, and therefore every effect is also inextricably logically bound to its cause's cause, and to that cause's cause, and so on back and back. We're intuitively familiar with this fact because it is apparent in the actions we take from day to day. For example, we know we couldn't drink a nice glass of orange juice without first opening the cabinet, taking out a glass, opening the fridge, taking out the orange juice, unscrewing the lid, and pouring some out. The effect, having a glass of orange juice, could not exist in the absence of any one of these steps. Because every effect is inextricably linked to its full set of causes, every chain of causality extends throughout the entirety of the past, fanning into an absolutely astonishing network of past causes. In the previous example, you couldn't have purchased the juice from the store if a trucker hadn't driven it to your location. The juice would not have made it onto the truck without the machines at the juicing facility squeezing it from oranges. And those oranges wouldn't have gotten squeezed if laborers hadn't picked them. The oranges couldn't have been picked if their seeds weren't planted. And those particular seeds couldn't have been planted if the farmer's great-grandmother hadn't survived a nasty bout of pneumonia in her childhood. She wouldn't have been alive to survive that pneumonia if her great-great-grandfather hadn't survived the duel a hundred years prior, killing his opponent. Skipping a few steps, humans could not have come to exist if the stars which exploded to create the gas cloud out of which the Earth coalesced had different velocities through space. Holding all of this in mind, see if you can appreciate the fact that if you remove any link in the chain of causality which brought the past to the present, the present could not possibly exist in its current form. From this perspective, it should be clear that every effect we observe is the embodiment of a staggeringly uncountable set of causes. Through examining this, the essential nature of causality, we find that the present is the sum effect of all past causes. The present contains the entirety of the past in its logical structure because the circumstances making up the present are directly dependent on the logical progression of causality woven through cause and effect in the past. The present is the sum effect of all past causes. The present moment thus embodied represents the interface between cause and effect, and it flows forward as each effect causes further effects. The future represents the field of possibility given by the laws of physics which includes all possible logical progressions the present causal circumstance can lead to. As we explore the components necessary to the existence of physical objects, an interesting dichotomy becomes apparent. All physical objects occupy space and change over time, yet these physical characteristics arise out of the logic of geometry and the laws of physics. The laws themselves must be non-physical because they do not take up space, nor do they change over time. Have we stumbled upon something that is not real since it doesn't fit the template outlining the nature of things we can touch, see, and physically manipulate? Hmm. I'll leave it to you to contemplate this question until the next video in this series. Which won't be long because it's starting now. In the last video, we observed that the existence of physical objects like chairs and computers is dependent on the existence of non-physical logical principles like spatiality, temporality, and the laws of physics. And I left off with the question, have we stumbled upon something which isn't real since it doesn't fit the template outlining the nature of things we can touch, see, and physically manipulate? After watching the previous video, I think you won't be surprised to hear me answer this question with, of course not. The non-physical exists just as fully as the physical, and in fact stands as the foundation and fabric of the physical. Quite a claim. This video will explain what is meant here by non-physical, and will show how a correct understanding of our beloved physical reality has non-physical reality as its basis. 
In pinning down the nature of the non-physical, the word information is of central importance. To be precise, let me define it in this way. Any fact which is true of reality constitutes information. Is it factual that you are watching this video right now? Then that fact makes up part of the information describing the state of reality. Is it true that you need to breathe to stay alive? What a complex fact, made up of many interrelated parts. Nonetheless, this fact, and all the facts which must be true in order for it to be true, including the facts describing the chemical uses your body makes of oxygen, is part of the information describing the reality of existence. With this in mind, allow me to summarize the pertinent points from the last video. 1. The form an object occupies in space is the embodiment of that object's geometric relationships. In other words, those geometric relationships represent the information, the totality of the facts comprising the spatial reality of the object in question. 2. Physical objects change over time due to causality, a logical progression delineated by the laws of physics. Furthermore, the present state of the universe is the logical consequence of the causal chain which brought physical matter from the Big Bang all the way to the various situations it occupies today. The unimaginable number of distinct causes giving way to distinct effects in the past also represents a big old set of facts, that is, information, and the present state of the physical universe, with these sound waves pouring out of your speakers and hitting your ears, is the natural result, the embodiment of, a tiny subset of that information. These two informational aspects are shared amongst all physical objects. Their positions in space and time are the manifestation of the information describing the spatiality and causal history of those objects. There are many more specific sets of information which only pertain to some physical objects, but not to all others. For example, part of the information making up the reality of your existence includes your biological ancestry, whereas the moon, for example, has no biological ancestry. In general, the unique facts which describe what is true of any physical object comprise the identity of that object. In this way, we can see that all states of affairs, all phenomena in the universe, are nothing but configurations of information. Of course, the information making up the universe isn't static, and the ways in which it changes are manifest in the causal passage of time. The behavior of and interactions between physical systems, therefore, represent informational changes in the facts making up reality. Take your body, for instance. As we've established, the shape of your body is comprised of the geometric relationships between all your molecules, and this information only exists because each of your molecules is factually situated in a specific location relative to all the others. The fact that your body is solid but squishy is an expression of the way your atoms interact, a factual consequence of the laws of physics governing the behavior of energy in those unique circumstances. Each microscopic little aspect of these interactions comprises a set of facts. Each atom's geometric location at each moment, its kinetic energy and electromagnetic field, its potential for chemical interaction and exchanges of force, etc. If any of these facts weren't true, the atom's path wouldn't exist in the way that it does, and the reality of existence would reflect that difference. Physical objects, therefore, only exist insofar as the facts which are true of them exist. The physical universe in general is nothing more than a complex, evolving embodiment of information. Now the question becomes, what does it take for this information to exist? In other words, what does it take for these facts which comprise the state of physical reality to be true? In considering the nature of spatiality in the last video, we've already encountered the answer to this question. An object can only embody spatial information, can only have true facts describing its geometric interrelationships in the context of the logic of geometry. This general relationship between logic and information is all-encompassing. Facts can only exist in reference to logic. In other words, a fact's validity is solely based on the framework in which its trueness or falseness can be defined. 
For example, whether or not 1 plus 1 equals 2 depends on the logical relationships underlying the definitions of those terms. If, in this hypothetical logical framework, plus meant subtract, this statement would clearly be false. While spatiality is perhaps the easiest real-world example of this principle to point to and explain, it's true in every facet of the previous examples. The nature and behavior of atoms depends on the existence of the laws of physics which set up the logical framework comprising the existence of electromagnetism, of gravity, of energy and momentum, of positives and negatives, etc. The facts which are contained in the existence of any one atom are true only in reference to these logical frameworks which also outline the possible behaviors that atom can undergo. These are quite complex logical systems, testaments to the extraordinary versatility of logic, how unimaginably intricate tensions of cause and effect can be built up from simpler logical components. The subtle and momentous power of logic is contained in this fact, that simple rules can lead to consequences of unlimited complexity. A nice example of this fundamental feature of logic is the game of chess. Once the logical rules of chess are defined, every possible game which follows from those rules immediately exists in the potential laid out by those rules. Every single game of chess, from the derpiest novice matches to the most profound championships, has simply been a realization of a possible game that already existed as a logical consequence of the existence of the rules of chess. As an illustration of how productive logical consequence can be, consider the fact that just the simple rules of chess allow for more possible games than there are atoms in the observable universe. There appears to be no upper limit to the complexity one can attain to by compounding logical rules on logical rules in this way. For example, the unimaginable network of logic comprising the chemical laws which govern the transcription of DNA in animal cells is dwarfed in intricacy by the coordinated activity of the hundred trillion cells making up a human body, and that intricacy is trumped again by the infinitely more complex logical interplay of humans in our societies, which is again outstripped by the inconceivable vastness of biological history on the Earth. The unlimited potential made possible by such logical hierarchies becomes very clear when you start considering such possibilities played out in infinite space over infinite time. However, the same does not seem to be true in the other direction. If you turn around and begin to investigate the roots of all this complexity, as expected, things get simpler and simpler, inevitably reaching a point where the logic can get no simpler. These very most basic logical rules form the fundamental basis of all higher logical systems. While I believe it would take some knowledge of a higher order than humans currently have access to to pin down just exactly what these might be, some candidates would be the fact that trueness and falseness in general is possible, that the existence of logical rules lead to logical consequences, and the logical prerequisites to the existence of numerousness and proportion. In any case, the conclusion that such fundamental truths exist appears inescapable. The existence of logic itself, along with the fact that all logical systems are at root based on the same set of basic logical precepts, gives concrete evidence of this conclusion. Without a foundation of basic logic, the unlimited variety and complexity of the countless logical systems we observe in reality could not exist. The most compelling theory for why such truths exist is that, at bottom, the most simple truths exist due to the logical impossibility of their own non-existence. These are called necessary truths, and for these to be untrue would invoke impossible paradoxes. Such truths must hold true in all conceivable worlds, since they form the logical basis for all possible worlds. This theory holds that the very fact of the existence of necessary truth automatically gives rise to all logical possibility.
That is, the entirety of logical possibility is a consequence of the logical interrelationships between the necessary truths, in the same way that the entire set of possible chess games is a consequence of the logical interrelationships between the game's rules. All mathematical truths, such as that 5 is less than 10 and greater than 1, that 0 times any number is 0, that a square's diagonal is the square root of 2 times its length, and on and on, these are all automatic consequences of the existence of the necessary truths. That logic takes a natural, unchanging, and automatic form in this way is perhaps the single most significant and consequential facet of reality, the heart and soul of the nature of existence itself. Absolutely every higher phenomenon in existence rests on the existence of these truths and is informationally defined in reference to them. The natural form of logic binds together all phenomena in the universe and accounts for why everything fundamentally makes sense. It's all rooted in perfect, eternal logical validity. This should all hopefully clarify the video's opening assertion that the non-physical exists just as fully as the physical, and in fact stands as the foundation and fabric of the physical. To summarize, physical reality exists as a necessary consequence of the logical possibility contained in the non-physical, the natural consequence of this logic leading to higher-order systems of logical tensions and interactions played out in the informational facts of the physical. That is, a subtle and momentous string of logical requirements based in the necessary truths automatically gives rise to the existence of energy, space, and the logical laws of physics which delineate the possible behaviors for that energy. These interactions are accurately and reliably understood in terms of mathematical relationships because physical phenomena are higher-order logical consequences of the same basic truths which give rise to mathematics. In other words, the logic making up the behavior of the physical universe is an extension of the existence of mathematics itself. The effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences is therefore not so unreasonable after all. A nice term for non-physical reality is the abstract, that which exists as a pure consequence of the natural structure of logic itself. The abstract is timeless, unchanging over an infinite duration. In fact, it is the logical rules contained in the abstract which give rise to energy, to cause and effect, and to change. The physical can then be called the concrete, an expansive set of definite facts interacting and interchanging according to the logic automatically laid out by the abstract. The facts making up concrete reality change over time to the tune of the logic given by the abstract. As you can see, the concrete, the physical, is only a complex extension and embodiment of the abstract, the non-physical, and is wholly dependent on the prior existence of the abstract for its existence. The abstract contains the absolute entirety of all possibility and rejects all logical impossibilities from existence. We can gaze off into the abstract using our imaginations, exploring any ideas which are possible to logically construct. In some cases, we can even imagine things which are not possible to manifest in physical reality, like a human who can transform into a fireball and back at will, or a wispy genie that can grant us any wish. In many cases, our imaginations can pull possibilities out of the abstract and make them concrete, giving them a physical realization in reality, enriching our world. Perhaps this is the greatest gift intelligence bestows upon us, the ability to delve into the secret realm of the possible and bring forth the gems we uncover therein. The abstract is positively miraculous in its unlimited potential. Every possible universe, every possible concrete realization of logic exists already in the infinite possibility contained in the existence of the abstract and is simply awaiting manifestation through the natural interplay of logic in energy and physics in space and time. For example, the entire factual history of our universe, from the Big Bang to the formation of the Earth, to the development of life, to the evolution of humanity, to the ancestry and events that led to you watching this video at this moment, 
All of this exists in the logical possibility represented by the abstract. In fact, this possibility always has and always will exist. Of course, it exists alongside an uncountably infinite sea of other possible ways a universe like ours could unfold, a range so vastly huge that even with an infinite number of universe repetitions, it would be next to impossible for the facts making up this specific universe to ever come together in this way again. Beautiful examples of concrete realizations of the abstract's potential positively surround us. In fact, they make up everything you and I have ever experienced. Take music, for example. Given the logical framework for organizing sounds of different frequencies and durations embodied in a piano keyboard, every possible piano chord and melody exists already. Every note played on a keyboard by Bach, Chopin, Bill Evans, and everyone else has been possible only because the logical framework underlying music exists. Of course, this logical framework is exceedingly complex, comprising the mathematics of wave interference, the mechanics of sound propagation, the intricacies of human perception which give rise to sensations of pitch, tone, and rhythm, and countless other subtle and varied systems of logic and information. Given the existence of these logical frameworks, the haunting beauty of the Moonlight Sonata, for example, shines out like a hidden jewel, a droplet of sublime expression separated from the infinite sea of cosmic possibility. If you look at the world from this perspective, further examples will jump out at you from everywhere. Every possible shape, from the labyrinthine branching of this oak tree to the sleek curvature of a sports car, exists already in any volume of space large enough to contain that shape. The concrete information can only exist as an embodiment of the abstract possibility given by the logic of geometry. The natural form which logic necessarily takes defines the full breadth of possibility open to existence. However, reality can never stray outside the realm of possibility delineated by the abstract. Nothing which is logically impossible can exist, even in concept. For example, a square circle can never exist because such a figure is perfectly logically contradictory. It's impossible to even imagine the existence of a square circle because our imaginations can only play in the realm of the logically possible. In a similar way, we can't truly hold the concept 2 plus 2 equals 5 in mind without ignoring or modifying the logic of those ideas. Such a construction makes no logical sense, and its true existence is therefore forever impossible. Being that the abstract is unchanging, it is perfectly timeless. No matter what the ultimate fate of our physical universe is, the abstract will remain untouched and unchanged forever, shining out as the soul and soul fabric of reality giving rise to new universes and lives and feelings again and again, endlessly. As you can see, this theory is expansive, covering the basis and rational nature of reality. However, it remains incomplete, because it can't yet account for how the necessary truths, and by extension, all information, exist. That is, how they're instantiated. It also doesn't account for how logical rules can interrelate, or what it takes for them to hold true in the first place. I'll leave the discussion of these how and why questions for the next video in this series. Starting now. Alright, here we go, part three. So, have we pinned down the nature of reality yet? Well, we've certainly covered a lot of ground so far, but there's still some loose ends to tie up, and some really interesting ideas to be reached through doing so. In this video, I'm going to talk about what it takes for the information making up reality to exist, and discuss what this means for our place in the world. Okay then, so far in this series we've established that the physical universe, including space, time, and matter, can be understood as being nothing else than an unfathomable set of dynamic information. Information, remember, is a word for the facts which are true of reality. 
We also covered the point that such facts can only be true in reference to logic, and further, that the natural form which logic takes has the automatic consequence of giving rise to the universe and all its unimaginable complexity and beauty. Now, though expansive, this explanation for the nature of existence has so far left unanswered the central question, what does it take for information to exist? In other words, what does it take for a truth to be true? This question is quite perplexing, in part because it steps fully outside the realm of the empirically observable and pokes at the very foundation of reality. If, as we've established, physical reality is but information based on the existence of logic, what does it take for logic to exist, and for information to be based on it? As an inroad on this difficult question, note that through all the numerous topics we've covered thus far in this series, one key aspect of reality has been missing. Consciousness. This facet of existence is simultaneously the most familiar and the most mysterious. It's also the most significant, since it's the faculty through which we experience every other aspect of existence. Now, there's sometimes a bit of confusion about the word consciousness, so let me clarify my meaning. Consciousness is simply the phenomenon of experience, wherein sensations of any flavor or type are felt by a subject. Absolutely every experience of any kind is described by this term. Under this paradigm, any being which has experiences is therefore a conscious being. Now then, we can observe that the only way we can know a fact to be true, whether that fact is a rational idea like 3 times 3 is 9, or a fact of sensation like sunlight feels warm in summer, is through experiencing the reality of that fact, whether through comprehending its meaning or through directly sensing it as true. There's not a single thing we can say or know about the universe that does not come to be known to us through this primal faculty, the faculty of experientiality, of consciousness. Now, might this provide some clue as to the fundamental nature of facticity, of trueness and falseness itself? I argue, and other much more eminent thinkers have argued, that yes, this is in fact our only reliable clue in the pursuit of this video's question. Just as we can only perceive the reality of any truth through conscious experience, Truth in general can only have reality through being known to be true. That is, all of the endless gallery of facts flooding our universe are only true, only exist because they're experienced as being true. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the universe only exists in the minds of humans or in the minds of the living creatures populating the universe. After all, the universe gives rise to the existence of living creatures, so the universe wouldn't be around to first give rise to us if it only existed through our perception of it. What I am putting forward is that the being of the universe and all of existence is fundamentally experiential, fundamentally mental, because the only way the information making up reality can exist is through being known to exist. So, for example, in video 2 I put forward the argument that mathematics exists as a foundation for the physical universe. Here I'm further arguing that the foundation for the existence of mathematics is the conscious realization of the infinitude of truths inherent to existence and underlying the logic of mathematics. This conception is broadly known to philosophers as idealism, a metaphysical framework which holds that the actual stuff of existence, the fabric of reality itself, is awareness, perception, knowing, or any other word describing the essence of consciousness. It's called idealism because it maintains that reality is fundamentally made up of ideas, and is the belief that something can only exist through being known to exist. This precept applies directly to the context developed in parts 1 and 2 of this series. A fact can only be known to be true through the awareness of its logical content. That is, information can only exist through being known to logically cohere, through being known to not be false. 
Idealism holds that the absolute basis of reality is a fundamental subjectivity which experiences the reality of existence into being, both through knowing the unspeakable volume of physical facts making up the state and evolution of our universe, and the infinite and eternal sum of abstract possibilities. Another way of saying this is that every fact describing reality, no matter how minute or trivial, is accounted for, and that account is held in the knowledge of some fundamental knower. For example, if I move this rock from here to here, the content of universal knowing is altered by that action to account for the new geometric location of that rock and the causal chain which led to that change and which follows from it, including you witnessing that change. I'll pause here real quick to say that while there are several different arguments I could make in favor of the idealist position, I don't really think the case is definitively closed by any of them. This stuff is just outside the realm of human certainty. So instead of hammering the point, I'm just going to get right into the interesting part, what this perspective means for the nature of existence and our place in it. Alright, first of all, what is the nature of this fundamental knower? Well, again, while I think it's definitely outside the bounds of any human capacity to comprehend such a one in any level of detail or certitude, following our premise that reality only exists through being known, we can conceive of the knower in this case as the supreme being, the heart and soul of existence. I'm tempted to call this infinite, all-pervasive awareness God, because this is the word I grew up with for the highest, most perfect being. However, I'm also extremely hesitant to use the word, since it has a whole host of seemingly erroneous associations. Okay, podcast note. So for the rest of this talk, I do end up using the word God for this supreme being, the knower of reality. And I kind of regret doing that because I feel like it's a bit distracting because like I was saying just a second ago, it does have all these other associations. But in any case, it does stand as a good word to use. And I'm just explicitly not talking about like a controller God or a creator God in the style of Yahweh or something like that. This is a pantheist view of God. What I'm saying is the supreme being is being itself. The supreme being is existence. The universe is the embodiment of God's knowing, extended from the necessary truths. Let me try to clarify the distinction between my view of this supreme being and the traditional view of God, which was familiar to our distant ancestors. I can't see any reason to think of God as supernatural, as being separate from or lording over reality. My view of God coincides with the context of modern scientific knowledge, in which it appears that the universe behaves causally in accordance with logical rules, and there's no reliable evidence of a supernatural influence which trumps those rules. It appears that God is instead the experiencer of what is true following the logic extended from the necessary truths discussed in video 2. That is, the causal cascade which has physics and physical reality arising from the logical consequences of the existence of the necessary truths plays out and has substance only through God's knowing of that cascade. From this perspective, God is reality and that every aspect of reality exists solely through being known to truly exist in God's awareness. Nature, therefore, is the natural embodiment of God's knowledge, and there's nothing supernatural anywhere in existence. This brings me to an important point I want to make. In my view, nothing happens for a reason. That is, nothing happens as part of a divine plan. There's no one in reality balancing the moral scales of justice, no cosmic reward for good behavior or punishment for evildoers, and no overarching cosmic narrative which we each play an important role in. This is why the worst possible things sometimes happen to the best of people. 
It's not because there's some entity controlling the world which allows those terrible, unjust things to happen. It's simply because such an outcome is physically possible. In other words, everything that is possible in reality, given the laws of physics, is allowed to happen. I'll expand on the moral ramifications of this line of thinking shortly. The next important point is that the idealist perspective can explain quite a bit about the mysterious phenomena of animal and human consciousness. To see what I mean, note that our brains act as information processors, gathering facts from the outside world and logically integrating them and modeling their content. This modeling creates a self-contained copy and reinterpretation of the information gathered. The idealist view holds that every fact in existence is coexistent with the fundamental awareness of the truth of that fact. So, for example, when the information gathered by retinas is modeled and reproduced by a brain, the experience of sight accompanies the existence of that information. Likewise, when sound waves vibrate eardrums and are mentally processed, hearing is felt. In general, in brains, the facts comprising the reality of the world which arrive through the sense organs are mirrored and reproduced, and the reality of those reproductions is, like all information, accompanied by the experience of the existence of that information in the knowing of the Supreme Being. Again, wherever information exists, God's awareness of that information, the experience of the reality of that information, exists. That is to say, the conscious experience we enjoy in life is simply a natural extension of the conscious experience which underlies the existence of the universe. It is the fundamental awareness which is coexistent with any information present in existence. So this phenomena where experience coexists with the existence of information includes the experience of the information which plants integrate and respond to in their lives, and likewise that which cells process in their various complex activities. Consciousness positively surrounds us and pervades us, with even the most minute bacteria likely possessing some degree of personal experientiality. Even the behaviors of atoms are known in all their intricacy to the infinite knower. In this view, the one who experiences all of our experiences is the same one who knows the universe into being. That is, the one looking out on the world through your eyes is God. There's no separation between you and God. In fact, there's no fundamental separation between you and anything. It's all one fabric, one substance. Information. Everything is in God and of God's knowing. Of course, in life, one can only experience the region of God's awareness which is attached to and generated by their brain's informational activity. But it's all one thing. If true, this would have profound moral implications. A human self would really be a particle of God's awareness which exists due to the information modeling performed by the brain. Conscious experience in life would therefore be a window through which God perceives and acts upon the world. We would all be one in our identity with God, and if this is the case, we should really wise up and treat each other better. This is what I consider to be my most important point. This understanding should help us cultivate compassion for one another and for all conscious beings because the same one who experiences my life is the one who experiences your life. With this knowledge, there's no way I could happily take advantage of you while benefiting myself because in causing pain in you, I'm also fundamentally causing pain in me by causing pain in the experiencer of reality which we all share and embody. This brings me back to the disavowal of divine justice I was speaking about before. Again, I see there being no divine plan for the universe. It just exists and proceeds as an expression of logical possibility derived from the necessary truths. 
Because of this, truly senseless and awful things can and do happen, like children dying or suffering due to illness, or the countless instances of torture and cruelty we inflict on one another. This isn't because the world is cruel or because God doesn't care for us. Crucially, in this view, God is along for the ride through experiencing all lives. The one who is subject to all the chaos, the tumult and strife of the world is also the one giving rise to it all, the knower of reality. God is alive in every being that has experiences and must live out any life that happens to arise in this universe or any possible universe. This runs the gamut from the most blessed, pleasurable lives possible to the most hellish or tragic outcomes. It all unfolds with an automatic sort of justice, which can replace in our wondering the idea of divine justice. Every victim of torture, and simultaneously every torturer, is an embodiment of God living out both sides of one of the countless, sometimes tragic possibilities open to reality. Every act, heroic or cowardly, loving or hateful, creative or destructive, is taken by the Supreme Being, and the full consequences of those actions are suffered or enjoyed by that very same Being. This is the big secret which life hides from us, behind an illusion we can't help but believe, because it superficially appears that we each have a personal selfhood separate from all others. This belief makes us each feel so important, a feeling we desperately want to feel. Unfortunately, it also makes possible acts of evil, acts of willful subjugation and manipulation, because it frames life as a competition between rivals, obscuring the real picture. This belief in our fundamental separateness gives rise to many of the foibles and tragedies that mar the human experience. And I think the moment we leave this outdated conception behind, we step into a new, more benevolent world. From the idealist perspective, we shouldn't be terrorized by the prospect of dying. Of course, I wouldn't bet my life on it, but I really don't think dying is the worst possible thing. Though it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, from within life to believe it, dying is likely just as beautiful a thing as being born. I believe that to die is to wake up to being God, with perfect understanding and boundless comprehension. To live is to wake up in any one of the countless outrageous circumstances the universe can cook up, and to have no idea where you came from or how you got there. To have no idea what you're supposed to do, aside from what your instinctual sensations motivate you to do. I think that outside of life, there's nothing else for consciousness to do but be God and know the infinitude of sacred knowledge which gives rise to nature. I think that God simultaneously experiences every texture and flavor of life everywhere simultaneously in a boundless dance of experientiality infinitely beyond all human imagining or realizing. From the inside of one of these lives, one can only experience the information involved in living that life. But from the outside, all is known simultaneously and fully from every angle and at every scale. So, to die into being God is just about the best possible thing that could happen to somebody, and also to wake up into life that is, to wake up to not being God, is the most interesting possible thing that could happen to God. Well, of course, there's so much more that could be said on these topics, but I'm going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening to this episode, and if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and review it if you have a chance. You can follow me on Twitter at IdealistYT, and you can email me at YTIdealist at gmail.com. Thanks again. See you next time.